America's space program has often captured the imagination of the nation and galvanized the country in a common goal. NASA is entering a new phase of exploration with new leadership. Jim Bridenstine is NASA's 13th administrator and joins us to share his vision of why exploring the galaxy still matters today. How women will lead the next mission to the moon and the path to taking America to Mars. All this and more on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? We're very pleased today to be joined by the NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. Uh, Jim was nominated by President Donald Trump, confirmed by the Senate, and sworn in as NASA's 13th Administrator in uh, April of 2018. Administrator Bridenstine uh, was also uh, previously elected to the uh, United States Congress as a representative from Oklahoma's 1st District, uh, began his career uh, in the U.S. Navy, flying E-2C Hawkeye off the USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier, uh, and a host of other experienced administrators. Administrator Bridenstine, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my honor. Thanks for having me. Well, we uh, you know we got to know each other a little bit uh, back when you were in Congress. I'm sure you're not uh, missing those days today, as opposed to uh, being able to play with all of the wonderful assets at NASA. Yeah, I um, I'll tell you, it looks like the Hill is a really rough place to be right now. So I'm I'm very happy that I'm at, at NASA. <laughs> Well, it's a great spot. It's a great spot for you, I think, in terms of your leadership and your style. Uh, I think in terms, uh, many people have asked the question, you know, has NASA lost that ability to capture the imaginations of the American people? Uh, And I can't think of anyone better prepared to to lead that effort uh, than you. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I will tell you, there have been some pretty dark days at NASA going back about a decade. We, we had a, a moment there where we retired the space shuttles, mm-hmm. and then we canceled the replacement to the space shuttle, the Constellation program, and there was just a lot of, um, a lot of concern about what is the agency going to do. But we're, we're bringing it back, and we've got some really big programs that uh, are very close to completion now. And I will tell you, with the president and the vice president giving us bigger budgets and bigger missions with bipartisan support in the House and the Senate, I think our future is very bright, and all of America will be very proud. Uh, that's uh, that's exciting to hear, and I and I want to dive into some of those programs and some of those initiatives uh, moving forward, and uh, and maybe start with uh, the uh, the Artemis uh, program. I think that's probably one that will uh, should capture capture the nation's attention. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, we have a big agenda to go back to the moon. I like to say we're going to go forward to the moon. Mm. Uh, I say forward because we're going in a way that's never been done before. This time when we go to the moon, we're going sustainably. In other words, we're going to stay at the moon. Uh, We're going to learn how to live and work on another world for long periods of time, uh, and we're going to use the resources of the moon in order to live, namely the water ice. When we think about the water ice, Water ice represents water to drink, of course. It also represents air to breathe. Mm. And hydrogen and oxygen, is that's that's rocket fuel. Hydrogen and oxygen is is the same rocket fuel that powered the space shuttles. And it's available all over the south pole of the moon. We're talking about hundreds of millions of tons of water ice on the south pole of the moon. And, of course, that was just discovered in 2009. So 
really, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, this major discovery was made, and that should have instantaneously changed our, our, our space program. Um, we should have immediately said, okay, we're going to go back to the moon, we're going to learn how to use the, the resources of the moon in order to live and work for long periods of time, and we're going to take that knowledge to Mars. Um, and that's really what the Artemis program is all about. It's about a sustainable return to the moon, um, and then we're going to take that knowledge and go to Mars. The thing that's also important to remember is Artemis, in Greek mythology, is the twin sister of Apollo. Mm. And we, we, love, we love the Apollo program, but remember, in the Apollo days, all of our astronauts came from fighter pilot backgrounds and test pilot backgrounds, and in those days, there were no opportunities for women. Well, now we have this very diverse, highly qualified astronaut corps that includes women, and we're going to go to the moon sustainably with this very diverse astronaut corps under the name of Apollo's twin sister. Her name is Artemis, and she was, in fact, the goddess of the moon. Oh. So I think it's really an amazing story to, to, to share. You know, America has changed, and, and the space program has changed. And I think it's a good story that, that uh, America can be proud of. Yeah, that, that is one that I, I think the American people could get behind, uh, especially uh, in a year like this where we're celebrating women's suffrage and uh, a host of other firsts yeah. and uh, a lot of great uh, advancements there as well. So as, as you look at that Artemis program, you, you mentioned that it would be really the, the place where you would be sustainable and then be able to use that to, uh, to parlay our way uh, to Mars. Tell us a little bit more about that. So what we need to do is we need to learn how to live and work on another world for long periods of time. The challenge with Mars is that Mars and Earth are on the same side of the sun once every 26 months. So when you go to Mars, you have to be willing to stay for a couple of years. Uh, we're not talking about a couple of days. You have to go for a couple of years, which means we have to use the resources of Mars to live and work for long periods of time. Well, the glory of the moon is that it's always a three-day journey home. And so we can go to the moon, we can learn how to live and work on another world, we can prove the capabilities, build the technologies, utilize the water ice, as well as the regoliths and other minerals there on the, on the surface of the moon. And then we know that if something goes wrong, we can always make it home, which, of course, we proved that on Apollo 13, for example. Something right. went terribly wrong on the way to the moon, and our brave astronauts were able to make it home. That's why the moon is so valuable. If, if, if we were to learn everything for the first time on Mars, the probability of success would go down. And so the moon really represents the best course for us to learn what is necessary to go to Mars. Yeah. So around the moon, we're going to have in orbit what we call the Gateway. The Gateway is a space station in orbit around the moon, and we're already under contract to build the first elements of the Gateway. And that Gateway in orbit around the moon is going to give us access to the surface of the moon. It's maneuverable. It has solar electric propulsion, so it can go, it can make sure we can get to all parts of the moon. You know, we learned in 2009 that there's hundreds of millions of tons of water ice on the south pole of the moon. What's interesting is how come we, how come we didn't know that from 1969 all the way up until 2009? For 40 years, we missed the fact that there was water ice in hundreds of millions of tons, probably a lot more, on the south pole of the moon. 
Well, we missed it because we landed at the equatorial region six times with humans. We had 12 humans that landed on the moon six times, but they were all in the equatorial regions where there, where there is no water ice. Well, what the gateway enables us to do is because it's maneuverable, it can go to all the different orbits around the moon and it can get us access to, to the North Pole and the South Pole. And we can go to where the resources are and we can learn how to use those resources. Well, that same gateway is also uh, evolvable. So it can, it can be evolved to be the, the deep space transport that takes our first astronaut to Mars, for mm-hmm. example. So it gives us capability and flexibility. So at first, it's going to be all about getting us access to the moon and being a command module for moon activities. But eventually, it's going to take us all the way to Mars. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit now and, and uh, talk about some of the interesting components to me in terms of how uh, we continue to sustain this. Uh, obviously, there's uh, private groups that are out there. So, you know, some are questioning what's yep. the role of the federal government now, pr- uh, public-private partnerships there, uh, as well as the international connection. Obviously, we're, we've been reliant on our international allies and alliances as it relates to space for the last the number of years. Uh, give me a sense, uh, both in terms of continuing role for NASA from the federal government and the private sector, as well as our international component? Yeah, great question. So it's another way that that this time when we go to the moon, it's entirely different than we've ever done before. We do have a very robust commercial marketplace. You know, people who listen to this maybe on the internet or however they listen to it, maybe they, they have their internet from internet broadband from space. Or maybe people have DirecTV or Dish Network or XM Radio. There's all these space-based communication capabilities that are transformational and, and, and remote sensing capabilities that, that are transformational. But here's the point. The point is there is a very healthy and robust commercial marketplace for activities in space. And so NASA has made a decision that instead of us purchasing, owning, and operating all of the hardware to get things to space, what if we buy the services from this very robust commercial marketplace? So it goes from NASA, we're going from NASA purchasing, owning, and operating the hardware to NASA becoming a customer, one customer of many customers. And when we do that, we've been doing it, for example, to resupply the International Space Station. Right. When we resupply the International Space Station, we buy a service. We don't purchase, own, and operate our own rockets. And, and, And it has been very successful. We've been very successful at driving down costs, and which, of course, increases access. And And we're doing that now, in fact, this year. This is a big deal. This year, we're going to launch American astronauts on American rockets from American soil. Mm. And we're doing it with a program that we call Commercial Crew. So we're, we are going to launch on, in this case, we've got two providers. One is SpaceX with the Dragon crew capsule, and the other is Boeing with what's called the Starliner crew capsule. And we're buying services from these two countries to get our astronauts back and forth to the International Space Station. The idea being that we want to be one customer of many customers. We're hoping that there is a very robust commercial marketplace that includes humans flying into space. Um, and there's a lot of, lot of reasons to have humans in space. I can get into those in a few minutes. But when we think about commercial resupply of the International Space Station, commercial crew to the International Space Station, and now we're going to start building commercial space stations that will eventually be the replacements for the International Space Station. So there's a, there's a robust commercial marketplace where NASA can be a customer and we can be one of many customers 
and we can have numerous providers that are competing against each other on cost and innovation, Mm. the goal being that we need to drive down costs. So we're doing that already in low Earth orbit. Now what we need to do is we need to take that model all the way to the moon. So when we buy the lander that takes our astronauts to the surface of the moon, that lander is going to be a commercial lander, and we want to buy the service. Now, make no mistake, we're going to invest a lot in developing that capability. So it is a public-private partnership, but we want to have numerous providers that are competing against each other, driving down costs, but we want to do it as a service. And then again, we can be one customer of many with numerous providers that are driving down costs. Oh, that's excellent. Uh, So I want to drill down. uh, You mentioned uh, getting more uh, humans into space, uh, and I want you to to attack that kind of in uh, two tiers. One, obviously, is, is just the regular consumer, uh, the individuals out there, but then also as it relates to uh, Space Force and what that means from a military perspective as well. Yeah, so when we think about technologies that we're proving right now on the International Space Station, we are proving that uh, on the International Space Station, for example, we we can compound pharmaceuticals in orbit around the Earth in a way that cannot be done in the gravity well of Earth. We're proving that we can create immunization that cannot be created in the gravity well of Earth. We are proving that we can, in fact, print in 3Ds, 3D printing, of human organs on the International Space Station using adult stem cells. So when we use adult stem cells to print human organs in 3D, what that means is that's going to have all of these technologies have amazing breakthrough capabilities for human life here on Earth. Right. Um, And that, of course, the, the goal being that that will drive investment private capital into the markets to do more activities in space, in space than ever before. So we're using the International Space Station right now to create those markets. But also, uh, we think about people who have macular degeneration and they lose their eyesight. We're proving that we can create artificial retinas for the human eyeball in space in a way that you cannot create them on Earth so that people who have macular degeneration don't have to lose their eyesight. And there's advanced materials like fiber optic networks that can be created so pristinely in space that you don't have to have repeaters. And, of course, that drives down the cost of laying fiber optic cables throughout, you know, cities. So there's, there's advanced manufacturing, there's industrialized biomedicine, there's all of these different capabilities that are being developed that can only be done in a zero-gravity environment. They cannot be done on Earth. And once these capabilities are proven, the goal would be we would see lots of investment in space. Now, to your question about the Space Force, remember why we have a Navy. We have a Navy because there is commerce on the high seas. And without a Navy, that commerce is vulnerable. And we've, and that's, that is precisely why the United States of America is powerful, because we have an amazing economy with amazing free market enterprise. And then we also have the strength to back it up. The challenge with space is, as you can imagine, we're already seeing, you know, it's already a $400 billion market for commercial activities in space, and it's soon becoming a trillion-dollar market. And there are nations out there like China who have called space the American Achilles heel because of how dependent we are on space. We think about the GPS constellation for navigation. Right. It, it also is used for regulating flows of electricity on the power grid and regulating flows of data on wireless networks like the cell phone I'm speaking on right now. It's also used for every banking transaction. A GPS timing signal is necessary. Without GPS, there is no banking. So we are dependent on space in a way that most Americans do not understand. And we want to grow this economy in space. And remember, the economy is on Earth. The activities are in 
foreign space, but we want to grow it. And in order to grow it, countries around the world who believe they can bring America to its knees by destroying space, they need to understand that we are not going to let anybody get an advantage over the United States by threatening space. Now, NASA does not do Space Force. We are not, we are not a, a defense organization. NASA is a science and discovery organization, but I'll tell you, we are developing an economy, and that economy um, is, is put in, in jeopardy if we don't have security in space, and that's what the Space Force is all about. Therefore, what? Uh, just in our final few uh, minutes here, uh, Administrator Bridenstine, I, I just wanted to to, uh, to talk to the American people in in general. You know, they've been uh, listening to this for the last few minutes. Uh, what is it that you hope every American thinks about? Uh, what do you hope we do about uh, our relationship to space and, and to the future of the space program? Yeah, so I think um, the, the future of the space program is very bright. Uh, we're seeing bipartisan support in the House and in the Senate. We've got strong support from the president. The president has put the vice president in charge of the National Space Council, of which I am a member. And so the amount of support we're having right now, I don't think we have had this much support since the 1960s when, when we had people on the moon in the early days, and of course the early 1970s as well. So I think, I think the space program is strong. I think it's important for people to recognize how space, we are dependent on space in ways that most people don't know, and that's why it's important for the American economy, it's important for national security, and these are the activities that, uh, that we need to continue to grow. And, of course, NASA plays strong. You mentioned international partners. Uh, we're growing our international partners. I'll tell you, when we, when we canceled the Constellation program and retired the space shuttles, a lot of our international partners were running for the hills because mm. they thought America didn't have a vision. Well, now we're bringing them all back. They all want to be with us on uh, going to the moon. They've never been to the moon. Remember, when we went to the moon last time, it was America alone. Right. This time when we go to the moon, we're leading a coalition of nations. It puts the United States of America in the driver's seat to be the leader, but it also gives us access to more resources and capabilities. And so this is an important program for the nation, for diplomacy, for economics, for national security. And I, I, think it's, I think it's a point of pride and prestige for our nation. And so I would just encourage Americans out there who are listening to, to know that, that your country is doing what it can to make sure that America leads. And that's what we're doing. We're leading. Fantastic. Uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your leadership of uh, NASA and our space program. And uh, there are some very exciting things ahead that really will capture the imagination of the nation. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Always. We'll do it again. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on uh, Deseret.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?